We'll be continuing with our core principles with the re- and worship with the reading of the scripture. Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you And when, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It's good to see you all today again. I'm Pastor Rich, and if this is your first time at our church, I want to welcome you to our church. I'm so glad that you're here worshiping with us, and as you can tell, we're going through a sermon series on our core principles. Uh, Today is the last Sunday, actually, on our core principles, and the core principle, the last one that we're going to cover is called Commissioned, Commissioned, right? Um, it's taken from the subtitle of Matthew chapter 28, which is known to be called the Great Commission. And uh, if you read Matthew 28, it's the biblical story of Jesus entrusting and commissioning his church with authority and power to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, right? Um, That's what a commission is. It's uh, a charge. It's an executive order. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion, right? It's a command. Um, I'll just read it very quickly here for you, Matthew chapter 28. It says here, uh, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? That's what it means to be commissioned. Uh, in other words, we believe that the church is not just for us. Right? Uh, I think so many times we come to the church as a consumer, 
and we look at the church and we go, what does this church have to offer me? But that's not what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is saying, when you come to the church, I want you to come and partner with me so that we can see what we have to offer the world. And the church is not a passive entity, right? It is an active and intentional uh, body of Christ. And so we take uh, being commissioned very seriously at our church. And so we think about, we pray, we live, we serve, and we breathe. It's very substance of this great commission into the life of our church because this is what Jesus has done for us in his life and death on the cross. And today's scripture uh, is the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you have probably heard of it. It's a famous story. There has been organizations and hospitals named after this parable. And it's an amazing story about the great commission of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take a look at this story from three angles. First, we're going to look at the lawyer's question. And then we're going to take a look at Jesus' answer. And then we're going to take a look at the third way of the gospel. So first, the lawyer's question uh, in, in his book, The Prodigal God, uh, Tim Keller uh, points out that throughout Jesus' ministry, there are always two groups of people who come to listen to Jesus. Two groups of people. First group of listeners were the Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law, like the lawyer in our passage. In ancient Israel, the lawyers were students of biblical law, which was the Old Testament, that was their constitutional law. So if you were a lawyer in Israel, you studied the Old Testament, and you studied how to understand and to apply that law. And this first group that comes always to listen to Jesus represents uh, the traditional path to moral conformity. That's the first group. Uh, the second group now didn't observe the teachings of the Bible either because they didn't grow up in that kind of family or maybe they left the traditional morality of their families or they just fundamentally disagreed. And this second group that always comes also to listen to Jesus represents the non-religious path of self-discovery, right? To some degree, uh, the so-called culture wars in today's society are playing out these same conflicting temperaments. Uh, even today, our society is deeply divided between these two perspectives. Not everyone falls into one or the other of these categories completely. Sometimes it's a mixed bag. But these are the two dominant worldviews in our present day. And if you study history, it's been like this from the beginning of time. It's nothing new. Now, uh, to most people in our society, Christianity seems like a just an, an another insulated sort of judgmental religion, right? But true biblical Christian faith, if you read the scriptures, is very different. On the one hand, uh, the Christian faith does make radical and countercultural proclamations. Things like the existence of God, uh, absolute truth, um, the moral brokenness in our world, and the reality of sin, divine accountability, but also divine forgiveness and the reality of the resurrection. These are the objective statements and declarations and verdicts uh, that Jesus makes. But with that being said, when Christianity first arose in the ancient world, it was actually wasn't called a religion at all because it bucked the norms of typical religion. What do I mean by that? Well, at times it did seem like a traditional religion, 
with the worship of a deity, ceremonial rites like baptism, praying, and teachings on moral righteousness. So some people thought, this, this seems like a religion. But then other times it seemed very anti-religious because Christianity emphasized grace over condemnation. You see? Christianity emphasized the freedom to empathize with others and to cross those social barriers to evangelize to different communities and even dare uh, say, as we see in the Great Commission, to what? Samaria, which was the enemies of Israel. We see this in the life of Jesus and his disciples constantly. At other times, it seemed like just a social revolution with its concern for the poor, women, orphans, refugees, immigrants, and the marginalized. And so when Christianity first arose in its day, it was recognized as something completely different. It was in a category of its own. In the Roman world, it was actually called not a religion. It was called tertium quid, tertium quid, which is a Latin for just saying the third way. There is religion, there is uh, irreligious people, and then there's, there's this. This is something different. It's not either of those. Now, when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus' approach is in stark contrast to traditional religion. He makes this very clear by constantly calling out traditional religion, actually. Many of Jesus' teachings is directed to this group, especially those who claim to know the God of the Bible, like Jesus' teaching on the prodigal son, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee at the temple in today's story of the Good Samaritan. Why is that? Why is Jesus constantly uh, singling out religious people? Well, in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, in Luke chapter 18, I just want to read you this story. It's, one of, it's a very piercing story. I think it's always a good reminder. Um, but here's what it says. Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right? This is the first group. And they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. <laughs> Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's what Jesus is saying. Here's, here's, here's the problem with traditional religion. Luke is saying religious people can be so focused on being right that we can lose sight of the fact that being right doesn't actually make you righteous, right? Losing sight of this, the Pharisee in this parable and religious people believe in an act as, as if they are intrinsically, uh, morally superior. When in reality, uh, 
it is not righteousness that they believe they are. It is self-righteousness. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme in the book of Romans. He says, none is righteous. No, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, friends, you and I, we are all morally broken. We are all spiritually, emotionally, and relationally broken. And we all need the radical grace and hope of Jesus. But it's easy for religious people to find themselves constantly in a position of moral superiority over others and seem to forget this. This is evidenced in the question that the law expert brings to Jesus. In verse 25, the man asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And I love Jesus' answer. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Now go do this. Do it. Don't tell me. Show me. You see, this, this, Jesus is not giving the lawyer a word of encouragement. He is rebuking him. He is confronting the man with an existential impossibility. He is saying, Friend, it is not enough to know what is right. Right? Even the Bible says the demons know that there is God and they shudder, but they do not obey him. Jesus is saying, knowing what is right doesn't make you righteous, it doesn't make you justified, it doesn't make you better than anyone else. You must do it. And if you don't, you are no better than those you condemn. You might know the word of God, you might know what you ought to do, but you will come to find that you will have just as difficult a time as anyone in living that out. Do not hate. Do not covet. Do not lust. Do not envy. Jesus is trying to humble this man. He's trying to get the lawyer to see his own shortcomings and to see that he is no different than those he judges. Now, the lawyer knows what Jesus is getting at, but he is not unwilling to lose the debate. I love the nuance of, of this text. Jesus' first effort here is not enough to humble him. The lawyer wants to be right. His pride does not want to yield because the scripture says in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. You know when you know you're wrong, right? But you want to justify yourself. You just don't want to admit you're wrong. That's what the lawyer is at right now. One Christian author writes on this passage, though the lawyer felt the weight of Jesus' argument, the man pursued a way to defend himself. He counters, and who is my neighbor, right? The implication is clear. Okay, Jesus, I get it. You want me to love my neighbors, but who's my neighbor? Let's be realistic. I can only love so many people. I've only, you know, I'm, busy, I'm a busy guy. What do you expect me to do here? In other words, the lawyer is trying to justify the scope of his compassion and keep his behavior and self-righteousness and justification intact, right? So many of us do that, I think. Uh, when we get angry, maybe at our spouse, or we get angry at someone at our workplace, or we get angry at someone in the street, we, we justify ourselves, right? We say, well, Jesus, you can't expect me to love this person. 
this person did something wrong. This person offended me. <clears throat> you know, growing up and uh, living in the Bay Area, um, I'm aware of the awkward tension that occurs at times when I'm around my friends who aren't Christian, right? Uh, maybe it's when I'm praying before a meal and they don't know whether to wait for me. So, you know, they're like, well, do I start eating? Do I pray? And, um, or the continual text messages I get on Sunday morning to have brunch and I'm just like, uh, sorry guys, I'm going to be at church today. At one point, one of my friends shared with me uh, that he was shocked that after I became a pastor that we were still friends. That's what he shared. And when I, I heard this, I kind of just brushed it off because I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what are you talking about? What's, what's me being a pastor got to do with being friends with you? Then I realized why he said that. And, and then I, I, start, I, was, I was very heartbroken. Because I realized that people like my friend, he, doesn't, he, he must not feel welcome, right? Or safe amongst Christians. Um maybe because the church is no longer a safe place for those who uh, think differently or have questions, or maybe the church has been so out of touch with those outside the church that we don't know how to welcome them or talk to them. And we should all grieve if that is the case, because if there is a place to be safe, if there is a place to be welcome, if there is a place to have your questions about life, Answered, it should be the church. It should be among Christians. Amen. Because I, when I read the Gospels, there is something about Jesus that non-religious folk just couldn't stay away from. Do you understand that? Something about this second group that either didn't go up, grow up going to church or fell away from the church, something about this group just could not help following Jesus, and it's not like Jesus ever held back, right? I mean, he, uh, he talked more about hell than heaven, but for whatever reason, they still could not help flocking to Jesus. His grace and his empathy, his willingness, his open door, his patience, his compassion was like a magnet just, that, just, that just attracted people intrinsically. He didn't he didn't need to be like, hey, we're going to give you a free gift card if you come to our church, right? They, they follow him out to the desert. So if you are here and you're not a Christian or, or if you have been away from the faith, I want you to know that Jesus welcomes you here. I welcome you here. I'm glad you are here. Um, we're not perfect. If you stick around long enough, you'll, you'll, you'll see that. <laughs> and we, we won't agree on everything. Me and my wife doesn't, don't even agree on everything. But that's where this thing that, that Jesus talked about, grace, that's where that comes in. And we must all assume that each Sunday there are going to be people here present who are not convinced of the faith, but they are searching and looking for hope. People who are skeptical. And I want you to know that our church is a place where skeptics are welcome. It's a place where you can ask questions, humbly study the scriptures together, maybe in a community group, and learn what it means to be a disciple of Christ.
Um, I'm not saying anything new. This is baked into our faith. It's in the Bible. This is how it's supposed to be. I just know, being a Christian myself, how easy it is to forget this. Which is why being commissioned is a core principle of our church. So that we may never forget what it means to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. It means to be commissioned. Now let's take a look at Jesus' final response here. Jesus understands that his discussion with the lawyer isn't going anywhere, right? He knows that. And so in Jesus' final attempt to turn this man, Jesus responds by telling a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. This uh, story starts with a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was robbed and he was beaten and left in the road half dead. And at first, a Jewish priest comes along, and the Jewish priesthood was the most select group of individuals in the Old Testament. They not only came from the tribe of Levi, but even more, they were only from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. And their sole responsibility was to mediate between God and the people of Israel. Therefore, to hear that this religious leader would pass by a fellow wounded brother of Israel need was a straight gut punch to Jesus' audience. The second person that comes along is a Levite, right? One of, you know, one of the temple workers who assisted the priest. So, you know, maybe the people listening to Jesus, oh man, yeah, spiritual leaders of our day, you know? They lack compassion. So Jesus says, well, let's, let's and any ordinary Israelite comes and he passes too. Then a Samaritan comes along. Who are Samaritans? Well, historically, there, is, uh, there was and is now tremendous bad blood between Israel and Samaria. They were the bitterest of enemies because Samaria was the capital of northern Israel, the part of Israel that rebelled against the line of King Solomon. So what you had was a civil war. And Israel was divided into the northern and southern kingdom. And because uh, there was this division, the Samaritans assimilated uh, the Assyrian religion with the religion of Israel. And so they followed a different God and a different way of life. And because they had not only partnered with Assyria religiously, they had also partnered with Assyria politically. And so you have now that the Samaritans and Jews as political and religious enemies but the Samaritan comes along the road, a so-called religious and political enemy of Israel, and what does he do? He has compassion for his enemy. The text tells us that he goes to him, he disinfects the wounds. Very thorough, isn't it? This Samaritan is very thoughtful. He cleans him, and then he bandages him up. Bible scholars believe that this Samaritan was probably unprepared, and so he probably tore up his own clothes to bandage this person at the cost of himself. And then the Samaritan man sets the wounded man on his donkey, and he walks the entire way with him. He gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is two weeks of stay, and then tells him, if there's anything else you need, put it on my tab. And so when the Jewish people are hearing this story, they are being hit in a very sensitive spot. 
their lack of kindness and compassion to their um, religious and political enemies. And maybe you, as you're listening to the story, maybe you are being hit in a sensitive spot, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, because we all probably could show a little bit more compassion and kindness to our enemies. Who is an enemy? An enemy is someone that you feel like attacks you, that is against you. Story is timeless. Human nature is timeless. But when it comes to compassion, the church, as we see throughout the scriptures, is called the salt and light of the world, which means that it is to be a beacon, a pace setter of compassion. So what is Jesus doing? He is coming here and he's challenging all of us. How is your compassion and kindness to your enemies? Maybe you don't have um, sort of this high-level theoretical uh, systemic enemy. Maybe you just have personal enemies, you know? Maybe they have the same political religious views as you, but for whatever reason, there's been relational conflict. But Jesus doesn't say love and pray for your friends. He says love and pray for your enemies. Because the kingdom of God is supposed to be different, isn't it? Because it demands the radical upturning of the status quo of thinking. That's the, the status quo of thinking is love and pray for your friends, hate and wish evil upon your enemies. But the, the kingdom of God demands a radical upturning of that kind of status quo of thinking, such as the impossibility of a Samaritan loving his enemies with compassion and empathy. You know, when, when we think along the lines of only praying and loving our friends and hating and wishing ill upon our enemies, do you know what is happening? What is happening is that the church is being dictated by the culture. After Jesus tells the story, he asked the Lord, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And I love the Lord's response. There's hope. He doesn't try to deflect anymore. He won't justify anymore. He says, the one who showed him mercy. When we listen to the story of the Good Samaritan, friends, it's, um, it is supposed to be Scandalous. Not just because it is religiously and politically charged. Anyone can do that. Anyone can make any conversation on social media or whatever over lunch or coffee politically and charged or religiously charged. Any, any troll can do that. Here's why it is scandalous. While those who claim to know God passed on by the wounded man, it was an outsider of the faith that showed up the life that God desired his own people to live. Jesus was trying to wake the lawyer up. The reason why Jesus identified the robbed, beaten, and half-third person as a religious insider and the outsider as a, Jew, as a Samaritan is that he is trying to provoke his, his Jewish listeners to not imagine themselves as morally superior, but as broken and in need, spiritually dying in need of rescue. Jesus is saying this. You know, when I, when I, I get 
humble too. When I get frustrated at others' folk and maybe I'm pastoring or whatnot, Jesus tells me this story. He says, Rich, you know, you think you're morally superior. He says, but they're not the ones who need help. You are the one who need help. You have lost sight of your shortcomings. Downright scandalous to a religious person, huh? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says that spiritually and morally before Jesus found us, we were dead in our sins. Dead. Not half dead, dead. Like the wounded man in our story, we are attacked by the ferocity of sin. The inability to live and love like we should and spiritually dying on the road. But Jesus comes into this dangerous world as the ultimate Samaritan. And though we had been his enemies, as the book of Romans says, Jesus was moved with compassion. Friends, on the cross, Jesus does what we can never do. In his death, he takes on the sin of the world upon himself at the cost of not his time, of not his energy, of not a portion of his finances of his own life. And as we place our faith in this powerful act of love, when we understand that without Jesus, without his compassion, that we are left for dead, when that grabs a hold of your heart, when we understand that every single one of us need help, it's going to knock us off our, our, our pedestal of moral superiority. If you're married, maybe in your family, the Holy Spirit's going to start a supernatural work in your heart that no argument could ever accomplish. When people ask me, what's the mission here, Rich, at this church? And they visit and go, what's the mission here? I say, to share Christ and make disciples. But what kind of Christ are we proclaiming? What kind of discipleship are we pursuing? Because when we say commissioned is a core principle at Risen, it means to follow the words and life of Christ, the ultimate Samaritan, to live a life of radical humility, of radical compassion, of radical love. Right? The whole nine yards. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, do you believe this? I'm going to ask you one more time. Church, do you believe this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we are all a forgetful and broken people, including the ones speaking, including the ones leading worship, including the ones who are welcoming the visitors to our church. And so much of the time we forget. Uh, we like to compare ourselves to others and make ourselves feel like we are justified and righteous and superior. 
But in reality, that's just the lie. The conflict and disintegration and brokenness in our hearts and our relationships just testifies to that. We all need the humbling but loving words of Jesus. That really we are all this this person on the road who was attacked and robbed and left for dead by sin. And you are the ultimate Samaritan that's going to come into everyone's life and patch us up and heal us and renew us and give us life again. And I could not imagine if, if that was a real life story, the amount of gratitude that person would have for the Samaritan. I could not imagine if that person could say, oh, you're my enemy. I, leave, me, leave me alone. Gratitude. Father, help us to live a life of gratitude. Gratitude for this beautiful gospel that we have that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned, that we will never be able to fully comprehend until we reach heaven. I pray that as we wrap up the core principles at our church, this last core principle of being commissioned, as we go through all seven of them, we see that we are blessed to be a blessing. That is the original Abrahamic promise. Go therefore, not stay. There's no greater joy than knowing you. And there is no greater joy than seeing others know you. So Father, would you send your Holy Spirit to fall upon this room and into our hearts soften all of us to love and pray for our enemies whoever and wherever they are because that is a true testament of being your disciple we pray this with all our heart in Jesus' name, amen